Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations About Race, a podcast series brought to you by Ogletree Deacons in partnership with Noticed. My name is Justin Tarker. I am an off-counsel in Ogletree's London office. I'm joined today by my colleague, Rebecca. Hello, my name is Rebecca Emery, and I'm an associate in the Ogletree Deacons office in London. Thank you for joining me today, Rebecca. Um, This podcast has been launched as a brief mini-series, which will touch on topics related to diversity and inclusion in the legal sector. And on that note, before we we begin in earnest, I encourage everyone to visit Notice's website, and that's www.notice.org.uk, and to take a look at the Notice Toolkit for Improving Conversations About Race in the Workplace. Um, That was released earlier this year, and it contains some really good guidance um, on steps that can be taken to improve conversations about race. So today we are going to talk a bit about ethnicity pay reporting. We plan to discuss what it is, why it matters, potential issues surrounding its introduction, and what could potentially be done to combat those issues. Um, So starting firstly with what is ethnicity pay reporting. Um, Put simply, it's the publishing of information on the difference in pay between ethnic minority employees and non-ethnic minority employees. Publishing that type or reporting on that type of pay difference is a concept that will be familiar to listeners in the context of the gender pay gap. Yeah, so just to touch on that briefly, um, listeners will probably be familiar with the fact that since 2017 in the UK, um, companies that have 250 employees or over um, are obliged to publish a report that shows the median average pay gap between male and female employees. Um, so this is only a relatively recent development. Um, it's pretty hard to find reliable data on the impact of the gender pay gap reporting requirement, but some reports out there do claim it's led to increased levels of female recruitment um, and female workers being promoted into more senior roles. Um, so I think basically the hope is that if we were to introduce ethnicity pay gap reporting, it would have a similar effect. Which we'll talk about a bit later. Um, and that brings us on to the topic of why we should have ethnicity pay reporting and, and kind of what the aims behind it are. So just in terms of where the idea came from, Rebecca, did you want to talk a bit about its kind of origins or what, why it's such a hot topic at the moment? Yeah, I think we're, we're hitting a, a real sort of cultural moment at the moment um, around the, the conversation about race. Um, if you're looking at the wider context at recent events, we can obviously point to the aftermath of George Floyd's tragic death in the US um, and the sort of reinvigoration of the civil rights movement of led to. In the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, we know that ethnic minorities are suffering disproportionately in terms of their health and their financial well-being um, because of the coronavirus pandemic. So I think we've got a situation where there's a public and press awareness of diversity issues in general um, and, and the political pressure is building, um, which has led to calls for better reporting of metrics in the workplace on areas including the ethnicity pay gap um, and the LGBTQ pay gap as well. Yeah, and in terms of aims, I, I, 
the main purpose of the reporting requirement is for there to be transparency, to highlight any disparity and for that in itself to drive change and improve its hoped workplace equality. I think in particular, reporting on any differences can be a useful tool for monitoring progress and helping to ensure that any employer or company's diversity policies are actually working. However, and this brings us to our our next topic, there are a few difficulties or obstacles um, with implementing ethnicity pay reporting and and achieving the aims we've, we've discussed. I think the first point is that unlike gender pay legislation, Um, which was created under the Equality Act 2010. And the fact that it was created under that legislation, it meant that the government were able to legislate for gender pay reporting without any substantial delay. With ethnicity pay reporting, on the other hand, an entirely new law would need to be made or the existing um, Equality Act would need to be updated. And I think there's there's also some practical difficulties um, that are worth mentioning as well. Yeah, that's that's right, Justin. Um, I think you're talking about practical difficulties with implementing ethnicity pay gap reporting. Um, the existing gender pay gap reporting format is maybe not as helpful as one might think when we're looking to build a framework around ethnicity pay gap reporting. Um, simply reusing that format um, with a different subject matter in mind is going to come with its own problems. So particularly, we've got the problem of what the statisticians would call small sample sizes or small groups. The current gender pay gap regulations require comparison of a mean woman to a mean man in the workplace without conducting any form of what's known as statistical regression analysis. So to put that in plain English, it means the variables that may influence the average wage of a man versus a wage of a woman, such as different job roles, different length of service, um, different seniority, are not factored into the equation. When it comes to sample sizes, this means if a company doesn't employ many women, then the presence of one or two women in high-paid roles can skew the data quite a lot and make the gender pay gap in a particular company look better than it actually is. Give a practical example. If we imagine a workplace where you've got 400 people employed, in which 40 of which are women, that means only 10% of the workforce is female. If one woman in this particular company leaves, then that's going to have a significant impact on the gender pay gap data as a whole particularly if that woman's in a very high or a very low paid position um, and the statistical problem exerts itself across all small data sets, but it would be exacerbated in an ethnicity pay gap reporting system, which will introduce even more variables um, and in which the, the sort of data sets will be even smaller. Or well, There's also an issue in terms of classifying diversity. As an initial kind of practical point, um, as employment lawyers, we're, we're aware that many Companies typically hold gender data. However, many don't collect or don't have diversity data. That's usually requested on a voluntary basis. And often when you have responses to that request, it's you may have a people selecting the option of preferring not to say or not to confirm what ethnic group they might be a member of. There's also the issue that ethnic minority identities contain several different small subgroups. And just to give an example to highlight the extent of that potential issue is that recent ethnicity pay data from the Office of National for National Statistics confirmed that or that information contained 17 different ethnic minority classifications. So that kind of just illustrates the extent of 
kind of detail or issues you would have in making in comparisons. And in turn, there would need to be, for any data to be meaningful, or to be reliable, um, there would need to be enough groups to correctly categorize the employees. However, the issue with that is the more specific the group, the smaller the sample size. So there are a, a number of practical issues in terms of implementing or reporting on ethnicity pay gaps. Um, and in terms of, for, for those that are interested in learning more about this area, in terms of what type of ethnicity pay information should be reported and how to manage those potential obstacles, I would encourage um, listeners to read the Employment Lawyers Association response to the initial UK government consultation on ethnicity pay reporting in 2019. Um, and that had a number of helpful pointers in terms of guidance on how to navigate these issues. And amongst other points, it recommended, or the response to that consultation recommended the reporting of several pay gap figures for different ethnic groups, where you would compare the gap between the highest paid group, everyone else. And that's not necessarily against white British employees, because depending on the circumstances, that might not be appropriate. And, and another thing that the um, ELA recommended is that where possible to allow for anonymity and to have breakdowns on gender, age, and geography. Um, and I think that the main takeaway from that recommend or those recommendations and from this point is that the reporting has to go into enough detail for it to be reliable and meaningful. And you really have to turn your mind to what's applicable to your workplace and how what different ethnic groups might be present in your workplace. So I think we'll, we'll turn now currently to just looking at where things currently stand um, in terms of ethnicity pay reporting, in terms of government action or lack of action. Sure. So um, as Justin just alluded to, um, the government did launch a consultation. I believe it was Theresa May's government, but you quote me on that, on whether a new law on mandatory ethnicity pay gap reporting um, should be passed. The aim of the consultation was to seek feedback on what information employers should be required to publish um, about pay breakdowns amongst their staff. Consultation closed in January 2019. Um, and the introduction of ethnicity pay reporting, mandatory ethnicity pay reporting, became a key feature in a Conservative Party election manifesto. But having said that, by December 2019, the trail, the trail goes a bit cold um, and the Conservative election party manifesto of that election didn't mention ethnicity pay gap reporting at all. As we mentioned before, we've seen mounting public pressure at the, around the Black Lives Matter movement and the Prime Minister re-announced an intent to establish a government commission to look into racial inequalities in the UK. The membership of the commission was, to say the least, controversial and the subsequent report findings are much debated. The report did not mention ethnicity pay gap reporting um, or introducing it on a mandatory basis. Um, and at this stage, we're in a position where ethnicity pay gap reporting is a voluntary uh, article, whether companies choose to do it or not is entirely up to them. But the Commission would recommend that employers that choose to publish their ethnicity pay gap figures should also publish a diagnosis and action plan to lay out reasons for any ethnicity pay gaps that are revealed and the strategy to improve any disparities. It was also recommended that reported ethnicity pay data should be disaggregated by different ethnic groups to provide the best possible information to facilitate change. Um, and that account was also taken of small sample sizes in particular regions and smaller organisations. 
In terms of what has positively been done to support employers to undertake this exercise, the, the Racial Equality Commission recommended that the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy would be tasked with producing guidance for new employers to draw on. Um, but again, to date, I, I don't think there has been a full guidance produced, but I'll hand you over to Justin to, to talk a little bit more about that. Not a lot of progress has been made, but like you say, that at least we do have that recommendation for guidance. And I think that is a really important point. And until that guidance is produced, companies won't be clear on how to manage um, this type of reporting requirement, voluntary or, or otherwise. And the effectiveness of that type of reporting, whilst it's well intended, is unlikely to hold employers accountable um, or, or to drive the change that in many cases may be needed if it's clear that there's a gap between ethnic minorities and, and others in the workplace. So we, we look forward eagerly to, to when that guidance might be re- released. Yeah, I mean, I think in summary, I guess what we can say is that we've seen an advancing case made for the need to produce ethnicity paper reporting um, and the need potentially for it to be mandatory because at the moment with employers left to decide whether or not they do make these reports themselves, we're seeing a wide disparity between different employers as to whether they do or don't report um, and the quality of that reporting but I think what we what we can say for certain uh, whilst there's a lot of unknowns about how this might move forward um, is that for any analysis to be meaningful we need to see more than just mean average data being recorded but we need to see a meaningful commentary um, alongside that data that allows other factors that will affect the data to be to be discussed properly in order to give a meaningful picture of, of where we currently are. Yeah, and it's just so that people have an understanding of the context and the reasons, and it's only when you have that information can you then do something about it. I think we'll, we'll leave that there. I hope listeners have taken something from our, our, our brief summary of ethnicity pay reporting and the kind of the issues involved in it and where we are now and what ho- where we will hopefully end up. Please do listen out for or look out for the next instalments in this series. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.